0: Well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Have you ever heard that one? Of course you have. Unless you're real young, you may not have ever heard that one. But those of us who are older have. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Well, that's one with which we're familiar. Pennywise and pound foolish, an old expression. Charge it to the dust and let the rain settle it. Ever heard that one? John has, he's old enough to ever know that one. Yeah, don't mind the mule being blind, just hitch up the wagon and shake the line. I hadn't heard of that one myself. I think I had maybe. Well, what about the cart before the horse? Putting the cart before the horse. We are up there, aren't we, or not? No, well, that's not Good. Martin, are we up front on the thing here? Or? Yeah, so far. Okay. Not my fault. No, that's not your fault. I, <laughs> I think it's my plug-in, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm still on no-show. Let's see about that. There you go. That it was my fault, Martin. I was still on no-show. Now then. We're going to talk today about putting the cart before the horse. But we're going to talk about it in the realm of um, religious matters, spiritual matters. How is it that in the spiritual realm we may be guilty of putting the cart before the horse? Well, the first thing we look at is that If we allow someone to teach, and I appreciate Tom mentioning our teachers in his very fine prayer, we need to pray for our teachers, our Bible class teachers. They are so precious, so important, and the ones here at White Oak do a wonderful job and take their work very seriously. And if you go downstairs and you see the younger classrooms, the classrooms for those younger people and how our teachers take so seriously uh, making those classrooms conducive for their learning of God's Word, Uh, We certainly do not ever need to take that for granted. But we need to make sure that the teachers who are teaching are faithful before they teach because putting the cart before the horse would have them teach before they are faithful. Remember what James wrote, a very sobering admonition in James chapter 3 and verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That is a sobering thought. It's a wonderful thing to aspire to being a teacher. It's a wonderful work in which to be involved. It's gratifying, very satisfying. And as I said, we thank God for the teachers we have here at White Oak. And they take their work seriously. But we must never lose sight of the importance of doing that. And there must be a certain level of maturity and obviously Faithfulness. A teacher should be faithful in attendance. A teacher should be an example, not just in the classroom while in the classroom, but by his or her life. And I say her because we have women who teach the younger children. And we need to have men and women who are teaching in various roles who are certainly living what they teach. There's another passage in Hebrews chapter 5, remember? Verses 12 through 14 where the writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern to discern both good and evil. That's the kind of person we need in the classroom. That's the kind of person we need as a teacher. One who has matured. One who understands the responsibilities of being a teacher. And you know something? It would be better. It would be better to have only one teacher who is faithful. That's all we have. Than to have a dozen who are unfaithful. We do not need to put teachers in classrooms who are not faithful to the Lord. And who are not qualified to teach. If we had to gather everybody in one room because we only had one teacher for that class, then better than to to have unfaithful teachers in the classroom. But, as I said, I thank God that we don't have to do that at White Oak because we do have those who are faithful. But teaching before faithfulness, that's putting the cart before the horse. What about leading before being proven as a leader? In 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have the qualifications for elders and deacons for that matter are also included here, but let me just share with you a couple of verses. Verse uh, 6 of uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 3. In that verse, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And then, in regard to the deacons, the deacons must be reverent, etc., down at verse 10, but let these also first be proved. Well, let these also first be proved, in addition to whom? The elders. So obviously the verse, verse 10, says, elders and deacons must be proved. Let them be proved. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Being found sinless? No, no such individual exists but blameless, yes, that is not chargeable with sin. He must prove himself. He must prove himself. These qualifications are sobering, they're important, and certainly we thank God that we have men both as elders and deacons here at White Oak who have proven themselves, who have met these qualifications, who do Meet these qualifications. But again, you know, just because a man is a good moral person or a good businessman doesn't mean he's elder material. And so we don't need to think that just because a man may be successful in business, he'd be a great elder or he'd be a great deacon because he's proved himself in some secular realm. No, that's not the qualification. That's not among the qualifications. There are several. And yes, we need to be certainly attentive to those qualifications. But just because he's a good businessman or even a good man does not mean that he is elder material. But also putting the cart before the horse is putting the world before God. And oh, what a problem this is in our world today. I suppose if you had to summarize, and the late Franklin Camp did summarize it this way. The greatest problem that faces the church, the greatest problem that faces the world today, if you had to sum it up in one word, it'd be worldliness. Some form, some degree, some kind of worldliness. And that's why the Bible, I believe, has so much to say in warning us against that kind of worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, John says, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then John reminds us that the world is passing away with its lust, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I have said before that John there in the latter part of that text says the world is passing away. That's present tense. It is passing away. And the second law of thermodynamics scientifically agrees with what the scripture says. True science always agrees with what the scripture says. Second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy says, the universe is like a giant clock that has been wound and it is winding down. It's not perceivable to the naked eye, but it's happening. It's winding down. How much sense, then, does it make for us to attach ourselves to that which is even now passing away rather than attaching ourselves to that which will abide forever? That's not a hard choice to make if we're thinking straight. And yet there's so many, so many, in fact, the vast majority, we'd have to say, putting the world before God, putting the cart before the horse. And that is Satan's determination. That's his goal. That's his mission. Love the world more than you love the Lord. But Jesus said, Seek first, Matthew six thirty three the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You're going to have what you need. The Lord is not going to let you down. You do the right thing. You prioritize properly. You keep things in perspective spiritually and God will take care of the rest. didn't say he'll make you a rich man but you will be taken care of. And James 4 and verse 4. Remember what James writes there in very, very graphic terms. He says, You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now listen to that carefully. Whoever... Whoever makes himself a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Not necessarily. Oh, obviously that's true. But what about the one who wants to wants to be friends? They're, you know, a lot of it has to do with attitude. What is my mindset? Is my mindset a worldly mindset? Am I thinking about what I would like to have in terms of material things, and I'm consumed with that versus seeking those things which are above. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1, setting my mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And why shouldn't I if I'm a Christian? For I'm di- I have died, Paul says in that text, my life is hidden with God in Christ. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world. That's why a poor man can be guilty of lusting after material things as much as the rich man is guilty of hoarding those things and lusting after even more. Because if I'm poor and I totally, I'm totally consumed with being rich, where's my priority going to be? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Putting the world before God, spiritually speaking, is definitely putting the cart before the horse. What about living together before marriage? That's going on in today's society perhaps more than at any other time. I would not doubt that it is going on more than at any other time. And yet, ironically, and I've mentioned this statistic before, I believe the George Barnard Research Group has researched this and found that those who enter into trial marriages, thinking that if we'll live together before we're married, then we'll see if this is going to work out, that more of those marriages that do ultimately take place end in divorce than those who never live together in the first place the statistics support being married before living together and not the, obvi- the opposite hebrews 13:4 was a passage we alluded to in the bible class this morning marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers god will judge God will judge. One of the works of the flesh, fornication in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And you know the passage in 1 Timothy 5, verse uh, 14 regarding widows. There the apostle Paul admonishes and notice this. He says, therefore I desire that the younger widows bear children, marry, manage the house. Your Bible read that way? Need a new one if it does. Does not say, I desire that the younger widows bear children, marry, manage the house. No, it is, I desire that the younger widows, what? Marry, bear children, and manage the house. In that order, marry and then bear children. In today's world, we have far too many bearing children and then marrying, or bearing children and not marrying at all. But we need to understand the order that God has designed, obviously. And that is marriage before living together, not living together before marriage. Oh yes, you knew surely we'd get to this one. Saved before baptism? That is definitely putting the cart before the horse. And yet, tragically, the vast majority of those in the religious world claiming to be Christians are doing that very thing. Putting the cart before the horse, despite the clear language of Mark 16, 16, which tells us the Lord's own words, he who believes, listen to it, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now we said, he who does not believe will also not be baptized. He won't have any desire to be baptized. So the Lord didn't need to say, he who does not believe and is not baptized will not be saved. We've talked about that before. That would have been a redundancy gone to seed. The Lord didn't need to say that. But he did say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And the little formula is B plus B equals S. How difficult is that for the honest, objective, unprejudiced mind to grasp and to understand? B plus B equals S. Belief coupled with baptism, coordinating conjunction and, he who believes and, a coordinating conjunction joining two equal parts, is baptized, results in what? Baptism. That's the formula. B plus B equals S. It is not, as the denominational world teaches, B minus, or B equals S plus B. But that's what they teach. B, belief, Equals S, salvation. And then add what? Baptism. How different is that than B plus B equals S? Daylight and dark difference. That's how much difference. The Lord did not say he who believes will be saved and then is to be baptized. That's what he would have had to have said for B equals S plus B to be a valid depiction of the formula. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And every passage, every passage we could look at in the New Testament clearly confirms that. Acts 2.38, the first time the gospel of Christ was ever preached, when Peter and the other apostles stood before that crowd in Jerusalem and convicted them of having crucified the Son of God. Many of them cried out in verse 37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We believe what you've told us. We know we're guilty of crucifying the Christ. Tell us what to do. We believe. He didn't tell them to believe. They already did. Obviously, by their statement, by their question, they indicated they were believers in the sense that they believed what they had heard, but is there anything else we are to do? Today's world, denominationally speaking, for the most part, would say no. Nothing else to do. You believe. You've made that clear. Or pray this prayer. Peter didn't respond that way. He said, repent. You believe, now repent. Change your mind and change your ways. Repent and let every one of you, listen to it, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Is that any different than B plus B equals S? It's exactly the same. Repent, because they already believe, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For, in order to have what? Salvation. In this case, he says, remission of sins. Same thing. No difference between salvation and remission of sins, obviously. So, what Peter told those people on Pentecost, the first time the terms of the gospel were ever announced, is exactly what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. What What about Saul of Tarsus? who became the great Apostle Paul. On the Damascus road, he encountered the Lord, seeing the Lord so that he would be qualified to be an Apostle, because everyone who was an Apostle had to have seen the risen Lord, and Paul had not seen him. So that was necessary, but that's not where he was saved. He wanted to know what to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? You go into the city of Damascus, and there it will be told you what you must do. The Lord then appeared to a certain disciple named Ananias, sent him to Saul of Tarsus, who said, Acts 22:16? 16, now why are you waiting or why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and what? Wash away your sins. B plus B equals S. Wash away your sins is equivalent to salvation. Wash away your sins is equivalent to remission of sins in Acts 2 38. Wash away your sins by being baptized where the water will cleanse you from sin? No but where the blood of Christ will cleanse you from sin in that water. The place where God has chosen to place the blood of His Son. And until you reach that blood in that water, you cannot wash away your sins. And of course, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, where the Apostle Peter talks about the days of Noah. Noah. Where eight souls, verse 20, were saved by water. And then verse 21, there is also an antitype. Something that answers to that salvation in water. There is also an antitype which what? Now saves us. What is it, Peter? Namely, baptism. And then he quickly adds, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. That's not why you're baptized, to wash your body. You can do that at home. You should. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer, literally seeking after of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice Peter did not say that baptism does not save us. He says baptism does now save us. N-O-W, not N-O-T. And that's equivalent to B plus B. Equals S. In every passage, in every passage, where baptism and salvation are found together, Salvation always follows. Baptism. It's not saved before baptism. It's baptism in order to be saved. Oh yes, not baptism alone. Belief that leads you to repent, to confess the name of Christ, and then to be buried in baptism. The final act of obedient faith where you reach the blood in that watery burial because that's what God has designated. And when you do, you rise to walk in newness of life, having been cleansed by the blood in the water, saved before baptism is putting the cart before the horse and what a tragedy it is because it is a widespread tragedy in the religious world today where people claim faith alone saves and that the sinner's prayer is the avenue to salvation. Nothing could be farther from the truth, nothing could be more counter to what the scriptures clearly teach. Well, what about putting rest before work? In the spiritual realm, putting rest before work is putting the cart before the horse. Because the apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, "Be what? Steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How long is that? How long is that? Hebrews 4.11, there the writer says, Let us labor, as the King James says, to enter into that rest. The New King James says, Let us give diligence to enter into that rest. Let us labor to enter into the rest. As we've said before, the passage doesn't say, Let us rest. To enter into the rest, but let us labor to enter into the rest. There is work to be done in the Lord's vineyard. You read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. The laborers in the vineyard. And what about the rest? That comes after the work. That comes after the work. Revelation 2.10, be faithful. The latter part of that verse says, be faithful until death, even in death. And I'll give you the crown of life. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13. Yea, saith said the Spirit, their works follow them. The latter part of that verse says that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. About whom is he speaking? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yea, he said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. When do you rest from your labors? When you die in the Lord. Now we've said this before and we reiterate here. As we get older, there's some things that we're not able to do like we once were able to do in the Lord's kingdom even in terms of the physical uh, liabilities and limitations that come uh, with age. But we can be faithful, as faithful as we can be, we can be in attendance if we're able to be in attendance every time the doors are open to encourage others and to let them see that as I get older I'm still going to be as faithful as I can be to the Lord or I can be involved in in whatever if it's a group, visitation group activity where I can get here to sign those cards or if I can help out in various ways then I'm going to do it and I don't want to embarrass anybody but I think about uh, our people who are involved in Bible correspondence course and some of those who are older like Joe and and Marty, and appreciate them so much in their later years. They are working diligently. J.C., with all the health issues and everything he's dealing with, still working. And I could go on and name so many others of you who are more advanced in years than some of us who I call advanced in years. I'm advanced. <laughs> but even those who are advanced, we've got Tom and Jerry and, and others, and the younger ones. See, that's the beauty of the body, isn't it? The older members, the younger members at White Oak, we work together. We do what we can. We do what we can. Clay and Margaret see them, oh, what they do. I could just go on and on. And that's a wonderful thing because I'm blessed to, I'm blessed to stand in the pulpit and preach to people who understand that work comes before rest and not the other way around. Not the other way around. But let's make sure that we're among those who could be complimented for not allowing rest to get ahead of work and what about this final one dying before ready that's putting the cart before the horse isn't it dying before we're ready to die well we might say that There might be a sense in which most, if not all, will die before they're ready, but not necessarily. I remember in Memphis, when I was there at Collierville, working with that congregation, visiting in the hospital with a good brother, who was a deacon at Collierville, he was suffering so badly from emphysema and other issues, it was a pitiful end, really, and a quite painful end. And I'll never forget when I was standing by his hospital bed on one occasion, he said, Jim, is it wrong? Is it wrong to ask to go on? Is it wrong to ask to go on? That's where he was. He was ready, and he was hurting, and he wanted to go on. So he didn't die before he was ready. He was ready before he died. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse two Behold now is the accepted time, the latter part of that verse says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't you boast about tomorrow, Proverbs 21, 27 verse one says, Because you do not know what a day will bring forth. Isn't that true? In James four fourteen Whereas you do not know what is on the morrow, for what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanishes away. We know these passages, and they remind us that it is entirely possible, and that all too often it is a reality that people die before they are ready. I was struck just recently by a comment made by a survivor of one of the victims of that SUV crash. You probably read about it, where eight teenagers were in an SUV, I forget where it was, maybe in Texas, I'm not sure. And the young lady apparently who was driving, they attributed it to speed, thought she was driving about 80 miles an hour and lost control. Wound up, submerged the whole vehicle in a pond and six of the eight died. And they were interviewing one of the sisters, a sister of one of the victims. And tears streaming down her cheeks as she said, I would tell people, you you call or You contact your loved ones and you tell them how much you love them because you are not promised another day. She understood that. And that's scriptural. We're not promised another day. Some of us will never have any warning, so to speak, that it's coming. It will happen suddenly. We've got to make sure we don't get the cart before the horse and die before we're ready. And thanks be to God, we can, we can make ourselves ready. How so? By believing with all of our hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By repenting of our sins, confessing Him to be the Christ. And as we've already talked about it, by being baptized for the remission of sins. Putting the cart before the horse. Teaching before faithful? No, can't do that. Leading before proven? No, can't do that. Putting the world before God? No, that's putting the cart before the horse, as is living together before marriage. No salvation before baptism. No rest before work. We work to enter into the rest. And let's make sure that we don't die before we're ready. What about you this morning? Are you ready? If tomorrow never came, if this afternoon never arrives for you, would you be dying before you're ready? Or would you be ready to die? You can make absolutely sure you're ready by obeying the gospel as we've just outlined it if you haven't done that. And if you're a wayward child of God who knows he or she has not been faithful, knows that you've sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church, you can come home in repentance We'll pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and who will forgive you completely so that you can leave here knowing that you're ready to die and that you won't die before you're ready. As we stand to sing, will you come?